You open it to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 is you find your place there. Today we're going to begin a a six-week sermon series entitled Christ Gives Me Hope. As hope is our theme this year, we're going to do some uh, mini-series throughout the year and beginning with the first one, Christ Gives Me Hope. It'll be six separate sermons. The first one is His Birth Gives Me Hope, His Life, His Death, His Resurrection, His Second Coming, and His Advocacy. And so this morning... The message is, the birth of Christ gives me hope. If you would, uh, follow along as I read Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 15. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Let's pray. O Lord, it is our sincere desire to pull back the curtain of time and to see the pre-planned birth of Christ, the great hope of all mankind, without which we would be desperate and hopeless. Father, I pray that you would help me to take this very big picture and to reduce it down to its basic elements so that we can glean the truth that sustains our hope in the darkest of times. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would fill me, lead me, and guide me. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, We're going all the way back to the very beginning. When all hope was lost for mankind, as I announced that the message this morning is hope in the birth of Christ, you may have scratched your head when we started in the book of Genesis. You say, well, I don't see the birth of Christ there. Well, it's actually there. I'm going to show it to you. But what I want you to see first is that all hope was lost right here in Genesis 3. God created everything good, Genesis 1, Genesis 2. He created man and woman in his image in his likeness he created them for fellowship understand God did not need to create man or woman God is self-existent he existed before anyone or anything else he needs no one and no thing else to exist he is completely self-sufficient but God decided to share his life and his love And because he decided to share his life and his love, he created creatures. 
in his image and his likeness, human beings with whom he could have a reciprocal relationship. And as he creates those human beings, he first had to create a habitat for them, and so he creates the universe, he creates the earth, that's the only planet for habitable life in the universe. He creates everything on the planet that mankind will need to exist for thousands of years. Can I tickle your mind with something? Y'all know how uh, cell phones uh, uh, for us grown-ups is a relatively new thing. But you know we didn't create cellular frequencies. Those were created in Genesis and we just discovered them recently and how to transmit communication across those frequencies. Doesn't that blow your mind it makes me wonder what else God created on this week of creation that we are yet to discover knowing that in the process of time mankind created in his image would have this natural curiosity and the ability to discern and to deduce and to be able to discover these things and harness them and to use them in the manner in which we are using them And so God creates mankind on this planet and he creates mankind in his image and in his likeness and part of that is that he gave them a free will. And if he gave them a free will, the only way that it's truly a free will is if they have an alternative to choosing God. And so God puts one tree in the garden and he gives them one restriction And they are to be restrained only by God's word. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. On the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And so God creates man, his image and his likeness. He creates them truly free, truly uh, with true individual soul liberty. They have the ability to choose to receive God in his goodness or to reject God and to choose an alternative. And as we know, they were tempted And they chose the alternative, and in doing so, they invited the most destructive force that the world has ever seen into their lives, this force called sin, and it has plagued the human race ever since Genesis 3, and it has destroyed hope. It's destroyed hope. Hope is lost right here. Do you understand that, that, that if this was all there was to the story, there is no hope for mankind because they could never restore paradise. They could never redeem themselves. They could never recover what was lost. But God gave them hope. And the way that he gave them hope in Genesis 3 was by the promise of the birth of a Savior. Genesis 3.15, as we read it there, is referred to by theologians as the proto-evangelium. That's a compound Greek word that means first gospel. First gospel. Did you see the first gospel? It's right there in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. A.W. Pink described it as the beginning and the germ of all prophecy. Genesis 3.15. Read it again with me if you would. God says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman. He's speaking to the serpent. I will put enmity between thee and the woman. And between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head. And thou shalt bruise his heel. We're going to flesh this out 
But what God is saying is that he would send one in human flesh, a descendant of Adam and Eve, who would rescue the human race from their sin by dealing the mortal wound to the serpent. To see the big picture, let's go from the first book of the Bible to the last book of the Bible. Hold your place there in Genesis 3. We will come back, but I want you to go to to Revelation chapter 12. The Bible is so interesting. It is a literary masterpiece. And the Bible will give us sometimes a, a broad overview. And it will widen the lens to the landscape of human history and allow us to see the big picture. And then other times it narrows into the very minutest of details. In Revelation 12, we get this big picture, this wide frame view. It says in Revelation 12, we're going to read the entire chapter, There appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars, and she being with child, cried, travailing in birth, and pained to be delivered. So the imagery is that John sees this woman, and she is pregnant, about to give birth. Verse 3, and there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads, and his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as as it was born so we're getting the picture there's a woman she's expectant she's about to have a baby but there is this dreadful beast who is waiting to devour that child as soon as it comes out and she brought forth a man child who was to rule all nations now we're getting an idea why is the dragon wanting to devour this child because this child is going to grow to be the ruler of nations with a rod of iron, and her child was called up unto God and to his throne. That's interesting. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred threescore days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out. Who is this great dragon? We're told in verse 9, that old, you say it, serpent. Well, who's the old serpent? Genesis 3, is it not? There was a serpent. And so, this dragon is the same as the serpent. Well, who's the serpent? Called the devil and Satan. Don't you love how the Bible explains itself? So we don't know who the serpent is in Genesis 3 when we're just reading into it. Who is this serpent, this unnamed creature that has the subtlety to deceive the woman and to trick her into eating of the fruit and to sin? But now we discover that this serpent is the devil, it is Satan, it is the great dragon. And he deceives the whole world. And he was cast out into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. 
And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto the death. Therefore rejoice, ye heavens. And ye that dwell in them, woe to the inhabitants of earth and of the sea. For the devil has come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has but a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was cast out unto the earth, he persecuted the woman, which brought forth the man-child. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent." And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth swallowed up the uh, up. Uh, and the earth opened up her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. Verse seventeen. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her what seed, which keep the commandments of God. And have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Words in the Bible mean something. And God chose words that he would use from Genesis to Revelation. So that when we are reading the Bible, we can make those connections. And so, in Genesis 3, we get a preview. Here's what's going to happen. Hope is lost But there is one that is going to be born, the seed of the woman, who's going to crush the head of that serpent. It's a preview. We don't have a lot of details. Revelation 12 is an overview. It looks back and it says, hey, look, there was a woman who gave birth to a child. The dragon was trying to destroy it, but the man-child wins. And so, the woman is Israel. The seed is Christ and the serpent is the devil that's the big picture and so when God makes that promise in Genesis 3 we can begin to fill in and in a sense we've got the decoder ring now right we went to the back of the book we got the decoder ring now we're coming back to the coded message in Genesis 3 and we're going to decode this message there are two main principles Here in Genesis 3, I want you to see. The first one is the menace of human hope. The menace of human hope. In Genesis 3, God said, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the seed of the woman, and you will bruise his heel. Enmity means the hostility of an enemy. And so God said there's going to be this hostility. There's going to be this enemy relationship between this one called the serpent and this one called the seed of the woman. And the serpent is going to bruise his heel. What does that mean? It means it's going to strike at the seed of the woman. But the best he can do is strike at his heel. There is an enemy of the human race and he has tried to rob us of all hope. 
That is the war that's being talked about in Revelation chapter 12. Make no doubt about it. The dragon is waging war against God's people. He is attacking God's people. And he's trying to rob us of all the hope that he can rob us. And so he brings devastation into our world. He manipulates and he deceives and he twists and he turns nations against one another. And he takes nations and allows them to abort their own babies in the idea that they're doing something that is for human good and he is a mastermind at robbing us of our hope and so I want to demonstrate for you through scripture how that this enemy this serpent has a pattern of menacing against the human hope. Uh, from Genesis 3, we see that his first attack was against Eve. He, he tricked her into sin, and he struck his first and most effective blow against hope. I mean, he really hit humankind with an irrecoverable injury so that human beings could never attain back to what they started with. It was his most effective blow. And then from Revelation 12, we read how this enemy has been trying to track down and to destroy the promised seed of the woman. And so the enemy knows that in that day when he robbed mankind of hope, God gave a promise of one that would be born through the human race who would terminate the serpent and restore the hope of human beings. And the dragon has been trying to track that seed down. Why? Because he knows that once that child is born, his chances are lost of ever defeating the Son of God. But if he can stop him from being born, or if he can kill him in his infancy, that is the only hope that he has. And so let me chart a few of the major instances recorded in Scripture. We don't have time to go to every text and read them, and so you can jot them down if you want. I'll give you a brief description. But the first major one is the Nephilim of Genesis 6. By the time we get to Genesis 6, something drastic has happened in the course of the human race that is described as the fact that, that God says all of mankind's imaginations are continually wicked to the point where God repents that he made mankind and he chooses to destroy the entire earth by a flood. Now, there's a little bit of debate about Genesis 6, but it says this. It says that the sons of God procreated with the daughters of men, and they gave birth to giants, men of renown. The terminology that is used there is a word called Nephilim, and uh, it is believed by some that this was the offspring of procreation between fallen angels and human beings. Now, there's some people who don't believe that. They say the godly line is the line of Seth, the ungodly line is the line of Cain. Uh, you can make your own choice, but in my opinion, it had to be something drastic for God to destroy the entire earth with a flood. Has he done that since then? So it hasn't gotten as bad as it did then. What is going on? I believe that it's one of the attacks of the serpent who is trying to contaminate the seed line to keep the Messiah from being born. And as you know, Genesis 6, God destroys the whole planet, every human being except for eight people, one family. But that's not the end of the attack. 
the famine of Genesis 12. And so in the process of time, humanity begins to rebuild. And in Genesis 12, God selects one man, a man named Abram. A man with whom he is going to make a covenant. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will bless you. And I will bless those that bless you. And I will curse them that curse you. And I will make out of you a great nation. And I will give you this land. And do you know what happens as soon as God makes that covenant with Abraham. And Abraham leaves his homeland looking for the promised land. A drastic famine hits the land. So much so that he can't stay in that promised land, that Canaan land. He goes down into Egypt. And do you remember what happened when he went down to Egypt? He was afraid that they would kill him. And so he told Sarah, his wife, say that you are my sister. And when she said that, Pharaoh took her into his harem of wives. And by God's grace and protective hand, he restrained Pharaoh and the truth came out and she was restored to her husband. But do you see what is happening there? The serpent's trying to contaminate the seed line again. This is the line through which God is going to work. Satan has been watching all of human race. Which line is it following of these descendants of Noah? And now God chooses this one man and says, this is the line. And so at the very beginning, he tries to corrupt the seed line. And then there's the debacle of Judah in Genesis 38. As we know, the line went from all the human race, and it got narrowed down to the three sons of Noah, and then it goes to Abraham, and then Abraham had one son, Isaac, it goes to him. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau, it goes to Jacob, but then Jacob has 12 sons. And so now the possibility, Satan doesn't know, he doesn't have foreknowledge, he doesn't know all the details of God's plan, he's just tracing the seed And he knows that it's got to be one of the twelve. And we know that God chose to route the line through Judah. And in Genesis 38, we get one of the strangest stories in the Bible. Judah has three sons. The first son marries a woman named Tamar. That son is so wicked that God kills that man before he has any children. As the custom is, his brother is made to marry Tamar to raise children in his name. He will not do that. And because he refuses to do that, God strikes him down dead. The third son is too young. Judah tells Tamar, go back to your father's house, live as a widow, wait until my son is grown, and then I will give him to you because he's afraid this son was going to be killed too. And then because Judah doesn't do what he's supposed to do, Tamar dresses up and disguises herself as a prostitute and solicits Judah, and they conceive a child together. And that is the line which it goes through. And you look at that and say, what in the world? How? That's crazy. I'll tell you what that is. That's the dragon trying to stop the seed. It doesn't end there. Next, we find the infanticide of Exodus chapter 1. 
Exodus begins with the Jews in slavery in Egypt and they are multiplying to the point where Pharaoh commands all of the male babies to be killed as soon as they are born. Do you think that's just Pharaoh's idea or do you think that there might be one behind him whispering, planting these thoughts in his mind to execute those male babies? In Pharaoh's mind, I am trying to protect my country from a slave uprising, but in the mind of the dragon he is trying to terminate the seed through which the messiah is going to come and there are some heroic midwives in exodus 1 who defy the rule of government to protect the lives of these newborns and in so doing they preserve the seed line to go on from there We could go to the Jewish genocide in the book of Esther. In the book of Esther, the Jews now have been taken captive by Medo-Persia and the wicked advisor to the king, a man named Haman, hates the Jews. He really hates one Jew, Mordecai, because Mordecai wouldn't bow down to him. But because he hates Mordecai, and Mordecai is a Jew, he convinces the king to sign a decree that on a certain day it would be open season on all Jews and that the Medo-Persians could kill all the Jews and take all their stuff and there were no repercussions for it. But what Haman didn't know was that there was a Jewish girl named Esther that had won a beauty pageant and she had won the heart of the king And she had entered into the queenship, and she is a relative of Mordecai. And she comes into the kingdom, you know those famous words, for such a time as this. And God placed that young lady there to save the seed line of the Messiah. And then, how could we forget the infanticide of Matthew chapter 2? The last documented attack on the seed of the woman who was to be the hope of man was at the birth of Christ. You remember when the wise men come looking for the newborn king and they come to Herod. Where is he that is born king of the Jews? And Herod asked those to search the prophecy and they say, well, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And so they go there and Herod says, well, send me word again when you find him. I want to come worship him too. And God warns them not to go back to Herod, and so they leave the country. And Herod, Herod is so worried that his throne may be threatened that he commands the infanticide of all male babies in that region, two years young and younger. Do you think that's just Herod's paranoia? Now, Herod was a vicious man. They said it was better to be Herod's pig than it was to be his son. That was a Jewish idiom because he had his son killed and Jews wouldn't kill the pig because they were not eatable. And so Herod is a vicious man. But let me tell you something. There is something behind Herod that is instigating him to try and kill these male babies. Remember what Revelation 12 said? And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Yes, 
there is a plot identified in Genesis 3 that plays out through the entire Bible. The great antagonist is the menace, but there is a greater protagonist, and he is the Messiah of human hope. The Messiah of human hope. Back in Genesis 3, God makes reference to her seed. That refers to one who would come as a descendant of Eve. And then he says, he will bruise the head of the serpent. That means that he will strike a mortal wound to the head of the serpent. Yes, the serpent has struck a a blow. Yes, the serpent will attack after day after day, striking at the heel. But when this one is born, he is going to stomp that serpent out. The only hope for the human race is that the Savior would be born, who could rescue us from our sin. Now follow with me as I make this connection from Genesis 3 to Jesus Christ. The New Testament begins with the Gospel of Matthew. And the Gospel of Matthew begins with the genealogy of Jesus. And it goes all the way back to Abraham. What do you think that is? You say, oh, I thought Jews liked genealogies. No. God's tracing the seed line back. Hey, if you have any question about who's going to fulfill Genesis 3.15, about who is going to be the seed of the woman. Let me just draw a road map for you. Let me just map out a family tree so that you can trace the line of Jesus. And you'll find that he goes all the way back to Genesis 12 to Abraham, the one that God chose out of all the earth and said, through your seed I am going to bless all nations. In addition to that, The Gospel of Luke also has a genealogical record of Jesus. But did you know that this one not only goes back to Abraham, but it goes all the way back to Adam. What's God doing here? Why two genealogical records? Why one that goes back to Abraham and one that goes back to Adam? And and, and we know that part of it is that for the Jews, they see that this is the descendant of Abraham and that this is the promised Messiah. And then for all mankind, he goes back to the first man. But one demonstrates that Jesus is the promised seed through Abraham in Genesis 12. And the other that he is the promised seed of Eve in Genesis 3. Furthermore, and this is where it gets interesting. This is the stuff that I love. Matthew's genealogy traces Joseph's line. Luke's genealogy traces Mary's line. Both were descendants of Abraham. Genesis 12, 7 says, The Lord said to Abram, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And so we have these two genealogical records of Jesus, one going back to Abraham, one going back to Adam. One is Joseph's, one is Mary's. But if you remember, God narrowed that line. It began with the entire human race, the seed of Eve. And then... He narrows it down to the Hebrews with Abraham in Genesis 12. I am going to choose you and make a nation out of you, and I'm going to work through your seed. And then it goes to the tribe of Judah in Genesis 49 when it promises that the scepter will not pass from his offspring. And then from Judah, the tribe of Judah, it narrows down to the family of David. So you following me? 
The seed is promised it could come through the entire human race. Now it's got to come through the Hebrews. Now it's got to come through the tribe of Judah. Now it's got to come through the family of David. Listen to the language that God uses when he makes the covenant with David. He says in 2 Samuel 7, 12-14, I will set up thy seed after thee which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. Do you think there's any accident that seed is used in Genesis 3 and seed is used in Genesis 12 and seed is used in Genesis 38 and seed is used in 2 Samuel and seed is used in, Genesis, uh, in Revelation 12? I'm telling you, God is mapping it out for you and I to see, yes, there is a great menace to our human hope, but there is a greater Messiah and he will come through the line of David. And would you believe... That the line of David intersects at the birth of Jesus Christ. You see, Joseph was a descendant of David's son Solomon, according to Matthew 1.6. And Mary was a descendant of David's son Nathan, according to Luke 3.31. And although Joseph is not the biological father of Jesus... God made sure that the genealogical lines would cross at this point. It's as if God is putting a big X marks the spot for all to see. Where is this promised seed in Genesis 3? Where is this great hope? Who is the one that's going to be born that's going to relieve us from the oppression of the enemy? And God draws it down and he makes a big X right there at the birth of Jesus. And he says, don't miss it. It is Jesus Christ. So if Jesus is not the promised seed, then I ask you, who is? My hope is in Jesus. My hope is in Jesus. And I want to invite you to put your hope in Jesus too. I like what God says in Isaiah 1.18, and with this I'll close. Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. You know, there are some accusations that are made that says to become a Christian, you have to stop thinking. you got to check your brain at the door, and you can't come in with any reason. It's only got to be faith, and it's got to be this blind type of faith that you believe things that are absolutely impossible, like unicorns and all kinds of other uh, nonsense. But that is not how God presents anything in the Bible. God says, come, let us reason together. He invites you to put on your thinking cap and to think critically, to reason it out. And I invite you to do that this morning. You say, why should I put my hope in Jesus? You show me another line that could fulfill what is promised in Genesis 3.15. You show me more evidence than the evidence that points to Jesus Christ. And I will put my hope there, but I have searched and I have studied, and what I've discovered is that there is no reasonable alternative to Jesus Christ being the Messiah.
And so today, I want you to think about the evidence so that you can put your hope in the birth of Christ. Would you bow with me? As we bow our heads, close our eyes for just a moment. Maybe you're here today, many of you, and you have trusted Christ. Your hope is in Christ. You believe in the birth of Christ. You say, what does this message do for me? It strengthens your faith. It allows you to see that there are not giant gaps that are inexplicable, that you just simply have to swallow and cannot have a reasonable explanation. God always asks us to have faith, but he always gives us fact to base it upon. And God has given you and I all the evidence that we need for a rock-solid belief in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah. For those who may not be believers today, God is the one who gave you the ability to choose. He gave you alternatives to choose from. But there is only one right way, just as it was in the garden. Any alternative leads to destruction. And so God gives you the evidence so that you can reasonably, rationally, logically test the hypothesis and to come to the conclusion that this is consistent from Genesis all the way to Revelation. There is a traceable line. And based upon the evidence of Scripture, you can put your faith in Jesus Christ, who was born like no other, so that he could do what no other could do. If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, oh, I do pray that you will put your faith and trust in him, knowing that God has proven the trustworthiness of Christ. Oh, Lord, I do pray and praise you and thank you. Lord, this book is such an amazing book. Though it was penned by some 40 human beings over 1,500 years we see the consistency of a single source author, that it was you, O oh God, the Holy Spirit, speaking through these holy men of old, documenting the details that you led them to document so that you could unfold this eternal drama of redemption. And I'm so thankful, God, that you gave us a promise alongside of the curse of sin so that when hope was lost, we were not left without hope. Our hope is in Christ. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.